Okay. So, in case none of you know, at the point that we are recording this, Andy has seen the Eternals before me. <laughs> and I want to make it clear to him that I don't want him to post anything about it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't. Um, yes. Logan. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you're, writing I already... the, you're writing the review, aren't you? I am writing the review. Okay. And I already posted something. Fuck! All right. <laughs> okay. That's fine. That's fine. Nah, just kidding. I've already actually seen it. I don't want to give <laughs> you a already, shit. <laughs> you already I'm jealous. Right. I, knew, I knew you I'm were there jealous. right when I posted it. You were thirsting for what o- I had honestly, to say. Honestly, I was curious because <laughs> at, at this point, it's a good indicator as to how I'm going to feel about it most times. Sure, yeah. Sit at. We're fairly in the ballpark. Yeah, usually. there's only like a few of the MCU films I think we're off in terms of where we feel. But like yeah. for most part... The chances are, how you feel about a film, I'm probably going to feel like half a star, at most a star more than you do, in yeah, terms right, of objectively. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, I saw, saw it was a press screening. I won't talk about it. I'll save everybody the, the juice. But um, I saw it at a press screening. Comes out next weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Gosh, I can't believe next week's November. That's that nice. is wild. Every month. The last yeah. like three or four months have just been like, wait, it's this month? And then... Wait, this month's over? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of this month and how it's only been a two weeks now that we've had an episode, and thankfully we're fucking done with that shit in terms of The Exorcist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, we both saw Halloween Kills and yes. Dune at different times. You were in Florida at the time you saw both of them. Yeah. This and is my back from vacation episode. Yes. Yeah. Andy was in Florida. He abandoned me. <laughs> to go hang out with his I said you sit with your podcast by yourself for a week he he classic Andy he sat with me to talk about the two exorcist prequels neither of us gave a shit about (laughs) it and left almost immediately after yeah wasn't around to talk about the movies we were actually interested in classic classic Andy (laughs) (laughs) but no yeah uh I think it started with Halloween Kills because that's the oldest of the two I and don't think we've actually talked about your thoughts on it. I think my thoughts have been pretty clear in terms of, like, I guess I'm... Is it really the minority opinion to like the movie? I don't know. I think it's it pretty might, great. It I might mean, be. I don't, I've don't. i seen... From, like, all the people that I generally talk to about movies, it's seen pretty favorably. I liked it. You liked it a lot. You liked it more than yeah. I did. Um, I figured I would. At, um, the, at the same time, I don't know. Because I think for me, I was watching it as somebody who has literally seen almost every single Halloween film. Right, it's one of yeah. those franchises where, like, due to its uh, frequency, especially on AMC, I have seen 4, 5, and 6 a few times. I've seen H2O a few times. I think I've seen Resurrection twice. I think, hilariously, the only two I haven't seen all the way through are the original Halloween 2 and Rob Zombie's Halloween <laughs> 2. I've not seen... Either of those, and I don't know why, um, but I've seen most of Halloween 2, because I've seen the ending. The ending's pretty good, where Donald Pleasance basically blows himself up to kill Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of rad. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just really weird to see, like, the series for the longest time has had the crutch of the Michael is is Laurie's brother twist. Yeah, that was that. revealed in the second, the yes. original second. Film. Yeah, because the idea was is that Carpenter and Deborah Hill wanted it to be a one-off. If anything, they assumed if they were going to do something with Halloween, make it an anthology, which they tried with Season of the Witch. 
which is really fun and really good, but also people fucking hated it initially because it didn't have Michael Myers in it. Yeah. And uh, but at the time for Halloween two, Carpenter, I think Deborah Hill might have helped with the script, but I think it was mainly Carpenter. He was at the time. He hadn't gotten a lot of back end for the amount of success of the first Halloween did, yeah. so he did the script for Halloween 2 just to get some money out of it. And I think they just kind of asked him, like, we need something that could make a series. What's something that could make this into a franchise thing? And it's the the familial tie, yeah, which is never in the original film. And that's what makes David Gordon Green's trilogy, to me, more fascinating is because they have to do something that has never been done before, which is, what is Michael's motivation if it's not to kill his sister like it's been for the last nearly 40 years? Yeah. And the answer to that in Halloween Kills, in my opinion, I feel like it's Bolt. And again, the movie is not perfect at all. I don't think that David Gordon Green is like, shown that he has perfected the Halloween film or anything like that. (laughs) But I do think it's a lot more fun than his first outing. I, yeah. I, I think it's a lot it I, has that nice balance of being just like that schlock kind of gory sequel yeah while also trying to do something new yeah I felt like the 2018 film was like half of a really good movie and like mm-hmm. exactly what I could want out of a of a Halloween kind of reboot sequel and yeah. then half just like kind of mind-numbingly stupid and boring mm-hmm. and like why why are we being so meditative and reflective right now instead of killing people and having fun? Um, and yeah. then Halloween Kills is a little more like, you know what? This is a slasher movie. Let's oh, kill yeah. some people. Let's it's, kill a lot of people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like, it's, okay, this is fun. It's it's still stupid, but yeah. like in in kind of that slasher way where it's like, you know, it, it's, it adds to the kind of charm and the camp of it. And mm-hmm. it's goofy and silly and... Also kind of surprisingly, I don't want to say deep, but it like is playing with some kind of commentary ideas that are kind of interesting. Yeah, that was the most fascinating part to me was like this felt more like a Carpenter inspired Halloween sequel than the actual Carpenter written Halloween 2. Right. Where it's like it's very cynical about people, Mm -hmm. mob mentality, and just... I, I don't know. It just it just caught me off guard how I in my mind I was like there are two ways they can handle this. One, the mob's gonna be in the right and it's gonna be fun to see if Michael's even gonna face the mob and get the shit kicked out of him. Or two, he is going to obliterate them mm-hmm. and it's gonna be hilarious. <laughs> and in all honesty, I feel like there's a third option where there's a little bit more mixed to it than I expected. Mm-hmm. Especially the fact that like and we won't really ex- spoil anything, but like the first like twenty minutes of the film might be my favorite part not saying the rest of the film is bad but like i like like the flashback stuff yeah so there's yes so yeah there's a flashback in the hell in halloween kills and the flashback stuff is like surprisingly great yeah like the amount of effort have you seen pictures of like what the 78 design of michael is for halloween kills like they try to recreate the original look it looks great huh they even they even recreate the scar on his mask when he gets stabbed in the face by Laurie at the end of <laughs> Halloween. You can actually kind of see That's the cool. indent, and it's one of, those, one of those things where, like, I think when I first saw 2018 Halloween, I had a fun time, but then when I realized it was going to be a trilogy, I was like, oh, 
okay, well, how the fuck is he going to get out of this one? Right. And then Halloween Kills, it explains it, but it's all fun. Like, yeah. it's genuinely a lot of fun. Yeah. And darker than I anticipated. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's and the definitely score, darker. The score slaps. The score is great. And John Carpenter, of course, yeah. did it. With his son, um, Cody, and with yeah. Daniel Davies. And just, like, the last half of the film's score is, like, some of the best Carpenter <laughs> recently I've ever heard. Yeah. Like, it's so good. And I, Yeah. I guess to go back to the like it being a minority opinion to like it or something, if that's the case, I'm not sure. But like, I really don't understand where a lot of people are coming from with their complaints. I mean, I guess if you know, if if you're not into slashers, and I'll admit, I'm not the biggest slasher fan in the I world. Mean, that's the thing too is like the but, fact that you even but, like this is a good sign, right? Yeah, agree. it's like I don't really like slash. I mean, I think they're funny. I don't think mm-hmm. most slashers are particularly great movies. I'm not a super genre um, enthusiast. Um, But, like, I don't really know... If you are a fan of Halloween, I don't know what else you would be expecting from these movies at this point. I I don't know. Like, people are saying, like, oh, you know, why is Michael so invincible? I guess he's just Jason Voorhees now. And it's like, well, Michael has kind of always been this weird, unstoppable killer. Like, that's the whole point. What did what did you what know. do you want? It's weird. It's, to be more realistic, like I don't know, that's not fun. At this point, the fact that the Halloween 2018, the, the fact that I have to call it that, it's just <laughs> stupid. But the fact that David Gordon Green's kind of reboot sequel is like the third. It is the third time they've basically soft rebooted the series. Yeah. In the, in the last like. 20 years because the whole thing is like they did one then they did two and three and then carpenter is like if he's even involved it's just like by name alone Mm -hmm. and then four five and six is its own trilogy that we could cover because it's fucking fascinating just like their decisions they decided with that where it's like halloween four is literally just halloween again but shittier gorier it is about Michael trying to kill his niece. Right. And then five is more of that. Yeah. And weirder shit. And then six is quite honestly maybe the worst film in the series. Mm. And that's unfortunately the one with Paul Rudd in it. Oh, yeah, where he so, plays Tommy. Plays Tommy. And then Halloween H2O, which seems to be the film that people are saying is a better version of this, which is, I got to tell you, <laughs> not even close. Like, H2O is fine. Uh-huh. But H2O is just like... It it's so boring, and also he looks bad. Yeah, Michael's not does not look good in that <laughs> movie. He looks bad. The ending slaps in H two O, but everything else is like mediocre at best. And I think that's the biggest <laughs> issue is like this is a franchise that was never meant to be a franchise, but the people who love this franchise love almost a lot of the shitty stuff about it unabashedly, which is what happens with fan base stuff. Yeah, I mean. Star Wars fans have that with fucking people who love the prequels more than anything. Yeah. It's kind of one of those where, like, when the original is iconic, then it's like all of the other old sequels Mm -hmm. get that same kind of pass of being iconic and great. And then when they make a new one, everybody's critical of it. And it's like, did you even watch the other ones besides the original? It's so funny. They're not good movies. Like, yeah, like, it's even worse that, like, he was considered invincible prior, even though in those films he's just supposed to be a dude who's just trying to kill family members. Yeah. And just keeps keeps getting lucky by not dying. Right. 
Like, that's how they get around that, where it's like, instead of it being a Jason situation where in Friday the 13th, they basically do kill him, but he's supernatural. Yeah. So he could just come back to life. In the Halloween 4 through 6, every time they try to explain how he's still alive, it's like, I think from 4 to 5, and regardless if we do it in the future or not, spoiler alert, in 4, at the end of it, a bunch of regnecks blow the shit out of him. Like, he goes down like a mine shaft, and they throw dynamite down it, and oh, they geez. blow it up. And then they're like, how do you get out of this one? And then in 5, I think they established that there was, like, another hole in the mine shaft and then he just <laughs> crawled through that hole and of was course. basically a sewer person for like six months as he was recuperating right yeah and and if if you're okay with that i don't know how halloween kills has anything that's any yeah less. right it's like if we're operating on the basis that the other halloween yeah. movies are good then how is this not good yeah i don't know how you couldn't just enjoy <laughs> the fact that michael is just a downright brutal killing machine yeah he's this. yeah well and i kind of like that the horrifying. mystery in these movies these yeah. newer movies of like okay not only what drives him but like well how does he keep you know it's kind of that is there they do yeah. leave it vague as to like yes. how he gets out of these situations instead mm-hmm. of coming up with convoluted explanations and stuff yeah. it's just he gets hit really hard and then he gets back up and you're like what do we do to this guy yeah it's just, it's one of these things where it's like they're going a route that people thought they wouldn't do because in retrospect like in execution you would think if you see it on paper what their kind of quote-unquote twist is it would be stupid but the way that they handle it, it's like, I'm really excited to see what the hell Ends is, as well as the fact that they've changed the premise of Ends to a degree, where uh, it's like, now there's going to be a two-year time jump between kills and ends. Yeah, well, and I think, I guess one complaint that I think I've seen from people that I guess kind it's of makes sense ending. about Halloween Kills, not even necessarily the ending so much as, like, um, it kind of feels like everybody thought that this movie was going to be what Halloween ends is actually going to be. Yeah. Uh, in that we were going to see a more kind of decisive confrontation between some main characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we don't really get that in this movie. And I think a lot of people felt like it was like a kind of random filler episode in I, the middle. I guess. I mean, which I, I guess again. I understand if that's your expectation. Sure. I don't necessarily agree or think that that's like no, yeah. basis for judging what the film is. Oh, for sure. Because my, my counter response would be one, they announced almost immediately after 2018 that this was going to be a trilogy. Right. As well as release dates, which right. hilariously due to COVID, of course, they couldn't follow up yeah. with that. And two, I mean, they've, cons- yeah, they've been constantly talking about like the development into the next one, as well as talking about how COVID shifted their story ideas. Yeah. Because, yeah, the initial idea was all three films were going to take place in one night. And now with COVID, they were like, wait a minute, what if we tried something different? Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, that's the most curious thing I'm wondering is like, I wonder if the original ending is better because I do think they shot the original ending, but they are putting it on the DVD as a bonus feature. Oh, okay. So like, I think the Blu-ray is going to have what the initial ending was supposed to be before the new, but honestly, I kind of... I really enjoy the the ending in the film as is, in in both a in in a comical sense because it's like it's because the biggest thing about what I love about Gordon Green's portrayal of Michael in the Halloween trilogy is like now that Michael doesn't have any familiar familial ties, a lot of his stuff has no purpose and also is like 
yeah. if it has a purpose, it's literally the most basic thing possible. Yeah, it's like more and that's kind of funny and kind yeah. of goofy and silly and yeah, but in, in a good way. Like he's yeah. still he's still like six foot three and batshit scary. But right, and I mean it's absolutely okay for these movies to be silly. I mean yeah. even the first one is pretty silly in some places. In, in a series that has had. Uh, <laughs> decapitation fake outs an incest baby a cult like yeah there's it, it feels like talking about how this series has jumped the shark yeah. people seem to forget there yeah. were multiple sharks prior that at it this jumped. point if you're a halloween fan there's yeah. no turning your nose up yeah. at like schlock or goofy absolutely like, especially if you're a slasher fan right yeah. absolutely not. <laughs> what you, do you want from these yeah. movies like yeah, even from like the series that makes fun of slasher films Scream became its own right, kind of yeah. goofy version of the thing it was making fun of. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah, it and is what it is. It's Halloween. Speaking of se- weird sequels with the same name as the first film, Scream's getting one of those too. Yeah, and and the same vein of what I assume is going to be the same vein as well. Yeah. We we can talk about the fact that the Exorcist trilogy that Blumhouse wants to do now has a director. They're getting the guy who's doing the Halloween <laughs> trilogies, David Gordon Green. Gosh. Which is, which now I feel like it's just now gonna be called The Exorcist. Yeah. I feel, so I feel now like we're just gonna to we're be. gonna we're gonna have The Exorcist twenty like nineteen seventy three and then twenty twenty four twenty twenty five whatever. Which, which you know, fingers crossed for that. Yeah. Again, Gordon Green has truly a fascinating filmography. Not He's saying not it's right. great. I'm. Yeah. Again, it's 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 subjective in terms of if but you like all weird. these movies. It's a weird yeah. filmography. If you would have told me the guy who made Pineapple Express and Your Highness was going to make a trilogy for two of the most iconic horror franchises yeah. of the seventies, and in between there made a, a biopic drama about the Boston bombing, and fuck, he Jake did Gyllenhaal. do that. Yeah. He also it's actually did, a pretty good movie. Yeah, he also did like a, a low budget Emil Hirsch Paul Rudd film that like oh, Netflix yeah. picked up. I think that was him. Like he just he's all over the place. Yeah. And that's absolutely. not a good or bad thing. It really it's just depends just kind on of your wild. It is wild. It's like the guy who wrote like epic movie and disaster movie going on to write Chernobyl. It's like oh, what? Yes. Yeah, it was superhero movie. It was superhero movie, superhero and, I movie think... and I think disaster movie or something. Yes. He made some of those crappy parody yes. movies, and mm-hmm. Craig Mazin is his name, and or, then he went or... and did Chernobyl. And now was doing The Last of Us show, which yeah. I'm curious to see how that turns and out. And he wrote the script for the Borderlands movie that's yeah. coming out. And on another note on that, director Kenneth Lonergan, who did Manchester by the Sea, is also known on his credits to have the Rocky and Bullwinkle film oh, with right. Robert De Niro. <laughs> It's weird how shit like that happens, especially if you last long enough in the industry. Yeah, you just but, uh, end up doing weirdly different things. Yeah, speaking of being in the industry for a long time, let's talk about Dune and Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a smooth segue. I, I know right. you, you were going to say it. I just wanted to say it, too. <laughs> um, we've... I enjoyed the shit out of this movie. I know you enjoyed it less than I did. Yeah, I was kind of okay with it. Mm-hmm. I I've thought about it for a bit because I've seen some of your criticisms about it. I've seen a lot of criticisms that people had about it. And to be honest, there is a chance, and I'm not saying that the the critiques aren't valid because the biggest critique I've seen people talk about that I, I agree with, but I also was, was expecting this, is that the ending is lackluster. Uh, because, yeah. it's, because it's half a film. It's half a book. Yeah. It's, it's really just like, how do you get around the fact that it's one of the biggest... 
It's one of the hardest books to adapt because of its size. Well, right. you do it in halves, even though it wasn't oh, meant to be in half a story. Absolutely. And I, I don't think I really... I didn't necessarily have a problem with the ending specifically. Yeah. Uh, I thought, you know, okay, that seems like a fine enough point to leave off. If we know we're doing this in multiple parts, it seems like, okay, there's, there's the anticipation for what's coming next. I won't spoil where they leave off, but... Um, yeah. It was more, I think, a general approach to the breaking it up that, that affected the whole structure of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt like, I don't know, I, I relate to a lot of the complaints of it feeling like an incomplete film. Yeah. Um, which, obviously, yeah, the obvious retort to that is, well, it is. It's a yeah. part one to a yeah. at least two-part thing. Um, and I get that. But also, you know, I mean... People did not have those complaints about, you know, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring. Everybody, you no. know, we knew that would be multiple parts. Um, yes. But what happens in that movie is characters actually, you know, go through arcs that actually kind of resolve themselves. The characters yeah. grow. The characters mm-hmm. experience, you know, uh, great triumph and loss and mm-hmm. great emotional turmoil. Um, and I guess in sort of a checkbox way, this movie has that. Um, there mm-hmm. are characters who die, um, important characters. Um, there are characters who, I, I haven't read the book, so I don't know, but seem like they might come back. I'm not sure. Yes, um, I think I know who you're talking about. And, and yes, and, you know, th- there is that on paper. This movie has that, but I, I, I guess I felt like mostly Paul didn't really have an arc in this film, and I felt like it would have been perfectly possible, even if you know Villeneuve had to invent one of his own that's not in the book. Mm-hmm invent an arc for Paul so it feels like he accomplishes something in this film because it it, particularly Paul more than anything else feels like he's just kind of there the whole time and is not an emotionally engaging character and and Timothy Chalamet did perfectly well I think he's a really good fit for for, the whole cast did well Oh no! I just think a lot of the characters were kind of like well I know you're supposed to be important but I don't feel that you're important (laughs) emotionally well that's what i'm i think is the most fascinating thing about talking about this film because i genuinely think that again not denouncing anyone's critiques with the film but i do believe that like a lot of people who have issues with this film there's just a chance that dune is not their cup of tea for sure because that's the thing too is watching this film it literally felt wild how like how little was cut yeah like there one of the critiques i have as someone who's read hilariously i've only read up to the point that the movie got to because of do what i like i listened to it i had a really good time listening to it but at a certain point life happened and i forgot to pick it up and it's been like two years since then but uh i got up to the point that the movie actually ends and it's just fascinating that like lines are pulled out of the out of the book Mm -hmm. descriptions are pulled out of the book and the stuff that's switched around is really fascinating in terms of, like, that makes sense. They're holding that reveal for a later time because right. the big thing about the first half of the Dune as a book is, like, it is – it's so hard to say that it is, like – people have been comparing it to Lord of the Rings in terms of Lord of the Rings to sci-fi. But unfortunately, that and that just makes it seem a lot more actiony than it actually is. Oh, yeah. I think is, the people who are saying it is the Lord yeah. of the Rings of yeah. – the decade or whatever and yeah, it also it, it doesn't make much sense it's even unfair to even have that comparison because one lord of the rings is one giant book that publishers decided to split into three 
And sure. thankfully, it was never meant to be three, but thankfully they found the best places to turn Fellowship into Fellowship Twin sure. and, you know, Two Towers and whatnot. Well, as this book was meant to be an entire story like it is, and unfortunately, right. you can't... It, it's really hard to do Lord of the Rings again in terms of production-wise. Oh, yeah. Especially... Not, yeah, yeah like, sure. it's it's especially, like, the only reason why they Doing did Doing the whole thing at once, you mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, the only reason why they forced Peter Jackson to do three Hobbit films instead of two is because <laughs> it was a it was a made brand at that point. Yeah. Like, it, it's... Like, looking back, it's so astounding that they even gave that a gamble. The new line even tried that. Yeah, that was... yeah. The Weinstein Company at the time was, ugh, this is tied to yeah. Lord of the Rings now. <laughs> yeah. But, like, the fact that they gave it the freedom to do all three at once. Yeah. When, unfortunately, you can't do that. You yeah, can't, it's you, kind Star of an Wars can't even do that. It's def- Yeah, from so a production like, standpoint, it's definitely an anomaly. Yeah. And I understand why, mm-hmm. you know, Warner Brothers wasn't willing to gamble... Yeah. A full production of the entire thing if it wasn't going to be all one movie or something. Yeah, or and, a seri- you know, a and it makes sense series. with the hesitation with Denis because Denis is a phenomenal director, one of my favorite directors working now. Yeah. And he made one of the best sci-fi films in the last 10 years. I mean, two of them. Yeah. I love Arrival. It's my favorite film in 2016. And I think 2049 is one of the best ways you can do a sequel to Absolutely. a old-ass film. However... 2049 bombed it did. hard. Yes. So it's like Warner Brothers is like, we want what you could have had with 2049, <laughs> but we don't know if you have enough pool, unfortunately, even though you made Sicario. Right. You know, Prisoners is a hit. You know, Arrival was a big yeah. hit at its time. And yeah, it's kind of a weird I don't gamble. know if Dune was just more marketed or if there's that much more demand for a dune adaptation than there was for a blade runner sequel my guess is and i think a lot of people have already made this assumption and while i think it's a little too early to say i do think that in warner brothers minds this is the closest they will get to a sci-fi game of thrones Mm. in terms of the fact that this is a this is a film series this is a book series where a big part of it is house atreides versus house harkonnen at least in the first book and then things evolve into more political. I mean, the the first half of this book is politics. Oh yeah, like that's what the movie is. Like the movie is nearly three hours, and the big thing about the movie is the fact that all these people are just not saying what they know; that they're being led into a trap. Yeah, right. And so, like for the first ninety minutes, it's watching people basically accept that yeah, they're, they're being led into a trap, but they're trying to prep it. Best yeah, they're way just kind possible. of following out political decrees yeah. and. And all that, and yeah. It looks gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Zimmer's score is fascinating, com- coming from him because <laughs> the man is just like a juggernaut and just is a powerhouse. And yeah. literally had a score for No Time to Die, and I had no idea he did that at the same time he was doing this. <laughs> yeah. And and also, I think what was shocking to me is the cast is just perfect, like strangely perfect. Like, uh-huh. and also they bring something to the table that I didn't expect, where it's like. Jason Momoa's character in the book is exactly how he plays it. He pretty much plays it straight. However, because it's Jason Momoa, he plays the character almost like a big brother slash uncle to Paul, which Mm -hmm. is something I didn't expect. And I think it gives him more of a emotional pull to him. Mm. 
while as Gurney, played by Josh Brolin, fucking kills it in the small amount yeah, of time he has get in much, there. Yeah. He is uh his his one big scene with or one of his big scenes, which is when they do the fights with the shields. Right, yeah, the training. Yeah, he he does all the lines that are in the book and he does it in a way where it's like you're supposed to, while you're in that fight, hear everything internally from Paul, which they do in the Lynch film right, right, every yeah. time. But you get all that just by how Chalamet's reacting, how Brolin is talking. Yeah. And it just feels like it is. Pro- this is probably the best adaptation from book to screen I've ever seen in terms of books that I've read. Mm. Seeing that get that translation, so when I like when I hear people talk about it, I, I was like, it makes sense. I get it. I knew going into it that like the last thirty minutes, I'd be like, is this where it goes? <laughs> no, no, no. Is this where it goes? And then unfortunately, where the book cuts off. At that part in the book, a lot of it is just traveling in yeah. the dunes, right? And just trying to survive, and you <laughs> see the worms from time to time, yeah. and that's really it. So it's a little bit of a yeah, kind of. It's, a... it's a little bit of a just a it's a little it's a lackluster end, right? Yeah. But now that we get a sequel announced, we're gonna get the weird shit. We're gonna get real fucking weird, yeah. and real fun. I'm, and I'm really hoping that what is it plan, plan for two years from now? Yes, yeah. it, they've announced it's October 2023. Okay, yeah. So, so what I'm really hoping, since I was, you know, I I was moderately engaged by the first film. Um, yeah. I was entertained on a basic level, and I was mm-hmm. like, you know what, that was fine. Um, what I'm hoping is that after this second one releases, and it's that much more engaging and interesting and emotionally dynamic and weird and all these things that, you know, everybody who's read the book says comes later. Um, yeah. You know, after it's delivered on all those promises, I can look back at both parts and kind of just view it as one thing and just kind of accept the mm-hmm. first part as, you know, it's the Lord Dumpy setup for all the great yeah. stuff that comes later. And it's a it, well done Lord Dumpy setup. It didn't, um, and not really have to view it as just its own thing. Because that's all I can do right now is no, view absolutely. it as, as one part. No, that is the and that's the hardest. Unfortunately I wasn't emotionally engaged in any point, but you yeah. know what? Hopefully they can improve on that in the sequel. That's why I feel like this is better than most part ones, is the fact that it's like Denis didn't know. Didn't necessarily know if he was getting the next one, even though the film says Dune Part One. <laughs> yeah, Denis himself even says like it is up to Warner Brothers. Yeah, they keep saying they're fine with it, but I haven't heard the green light yet. Right. Which and so that first film is like, even though it is mainly lore dump, and is a lot of little arc tweaks and little arc introductions and a little arc kind of like setups and payoffs. Because I do think at the end of the film, Paul has a payoff. It's just not. No, it's nowhere near as big as the actual end of the book where he actually mm-hmm. transforms into the prophet he is prophesized to be. Right, yeah. It is, it's still astounding to me that it's like, with something like Harry Potter or catching or mocking Jay or like the, the YA the novels that did part ones. Yeah. It was very clear that they did part ones because, oh, we could do this we and get money this. out of people. Yeah. yeah. Well, as with Denis. Denis had to do a part one because we've seen the version of this film that doesn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Lynch's Dune basically goes, what if the first part is the first hour and the second part is the second hour? Right. And it's not a good movie because they had to force so much into the little (laughs) time frame. And with the fact that, like, Denis has said not only does he want to do Dune part two, he wants to do the sequel. 
Yeah. He wants to do the second Dune book, which would be good, and I feel like it would be the closest he could get before Warner Brothers starts asking, are we going to do the really weird shit? Because the series just goes off into even weirder yeah. stuff. Well, I had heard floating info, I don't know if this is true, but info floating around that the plan is to do a Dune Part 2 and then do it like an HBO Max series. Yeah, of they're doing the a, a Benny Gesserit show, which I have oh, okay. no idea what that would be. Right. But it is a, not sh- a book just about the Benny Gesserit, is there? There probably is. There's there is so many. There are so many books. Oh really? Well, the thing is, like I Herbert, only I think Herbert wrote four, maybe five of them, and then passed away, and then his son picked up the mantle oh, okay. and expanded upon. I see. Because I think once he expanded upon it, I think he might have finished the series as well as done a House Harkonnen book and a House Atreides book and kind of built it out more of the lore and the prequel stuff and whatnot, which I think is, like, where a lot of... I don't remember in this movie they they talk about, like, how House Atreides, uh, Paul's grandfather was a matador. I do not remember that. Right. That was fascinating to me because I could not remember that being a part of the original book. Yeah, maybe that was a little Denis flourish. Maybe a little flourish. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what part two does. I am excited to watch part one again, but I was not surprised by the response after seeing kind of like people who know about Boone have probably read it, really thought it was fantastic. And people who were trying to get introduced to Dune, it went either way, which is yeah. understandable because it's like Warner Brothers is trying to push this as like the next sci-fi epic. And it is a sci-fi epic, yeah. but it's more the vein of a Thrones rather than, like, a Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Even though there are some Lord of the Rings kind of set pieces yeah. and from with, time with, to time. And with that comparison, I think that's why there's probably a pretty decent argument that, you know, not that it would have been able to have gotten made, but, you know, the story of Dune might have been better suited to a series like Game of Thrones no, yeah. rather than two movies or a movie. Well, that's the thing, too, um, is I, I feel but like... maybe that was even... They thought that was even more of a gamble yeah. than doing... It might, it might be the fact that that film was put in development before HBO Max was in finalization. Yeah, so they didn't because, have their own streaming option. Because there are there are Dune miniseries. Actually, there is a Dune miniseries that follows yeah. Paul's son that's played by a young James McAvoy like yeah. in the early 2000s. Like, they've done that, but unfortunately at the times they've done it, it don't look great <laughs> yeah. for obvious reasons. But now it's like, now they've committed to this, we're just going to see where it goes from here. Yeah. But uh, hey, we are nearly thirty-five minutes in. Yeah, we should maybe. I think we should talk. Do the episode. Maybe, you know. Huh. And then, hello everyone. I'm Logan Sowash. <laughs> I'm Andy Carr. And in case you haven't been listening for the last thirty minutes, which of you have, thank you. We had to get that off our chest because a lot of movies have been coming out recently. <laughs> this is Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, and on Odd Trilogies, we take a trio of films, whether tied by number, thematic elements, cast and crew, etc. We go through each film one by one, and we talk about the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And it's actually kind of, you know, coincidental that we talked about Carpenter already in our first 30 minutes, because today's trilogy is tied to John Carpenter. The classic, iconic, you know, at one point, the master of horror himself. Yes. Writer-director John Carpenter. We are talking about John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. Which are three films that are not one, two, three. They are all tied by one big thematic element. Trying to stop the end of the world. Yeah, the impending threat of all three films is essentially a different kind of 
apocalyptic threat that yes. would threaten the existence of all mm-hmm. that we know. And, what's um, and they're great, all radically different threats. Yeah. What's great about it, too, is like with each consecutive film, the threat gets closer to home and even becomes a bigger threat to a degree. Yeah. Where it's like at going. At least a like kind of more mind boggling threat. Yes. Goes starts off with like an a possible alien invasion to ending on pure insanity that you cannot even fathom. Right, yeah, because it's beyond meta. Mm -hmm. And in case you don't know, the trilogy is 1982's The Thing, 1987's Prince of Darkness, and 1995's In the Mouth of Madness. And to start off with 1982's The Thing, it is 1982's The Thing. It's John Carpenter doing a remake of a 1950s sci-fi horror film called The Thing from Another World, which is based off of a late 30s novel called Who Goes There? (laughs) <laughs> which was, I think, it first started as like a, a small story in like a sci-fi publishing magazine that yeah. became a, a book. And in case you don't know, 1982's The Thing is considered by many to be one of the best horror films of all time, if not yeah. Carpenter's best film. Right. And also is was a VFX juggernaut for the time, yeah. and it bombed horribly. <laughs> it is actually a film that not only bombed horribly, it was critically panned. People hated this movie when it came Which out in 82. Which is just kind of mind-boggling yeah. And to nearly think about. 40 years later, and the 40th anniversary being next year, it is getting a 4K Ultra release. People constantly talk about how good this movie is and best of horror, kind of, especially 80s horror. And it is the thing. Like, it really is, like, <laughs> it is... The classic idea of a bunch of people are stranded in the middle of nowhere. An alien shows up. It turns out the alien has the ability to pretend to be other people. And it becomes a game of clue to figure out who is the thing. And if they are a thing, how do we stop it? Yeah. And it's a tight hundred minutes of just Kurt Russell being at his peak sexiness. Keith David fucking killing it and like... One of his earlier roles, having Wilford Brimley without the mustache, which threw me, which throws me <laughs> off every time I watch it. recognizable. Absolutely yeah. not. And just a great cast, a great premise. I'm going to be honest, Andy. I think this movie's a ten out of ten. I fucking oh, love this it's movie. It's a phenomenal. This film, movie's a fucking it, classic it just for a reason. Hurts thinking about the reception <laughs> at the time. Just that, like, I don't know. You look back sometimes and. Obviously, if you'd been there, maybe you would have thought the same thing. But yeah. it's just weird how how perception changes with time. Because I cannot imagine this movie just getting totally crapped on. It's it's wild. It's because, also crazy. Like, nobody thinks it's a bad movie now. No. Nobody who loves movies. No. It's it's so fun. It's it's fascinating because it's like at that time. You have Carpenter off the heels of Escape from New York, yeah. which makes Kurt Russell a star, Right. which is when Kurt Russell decides to be a part of it, it's like, holy shit, we have the newest star that Carpenter made. <laughs> we have Dean Cundy as the director of photography, who has so many phenomenal films under his belt after this film. like this isn't, I don't even think this is even his best film in terms of being a DP. You have, I think, I can't remember his name in VFX, but you have like... I think Rick Baker's protege, oh, who yeah. does the VFX for this film, and my God, I cannot, I just cannot express how it's <laughs> nearly been 40 years, but watching this movie, the effects are so 
astounding. Yeah. Even when it's clear something's obviously a puppet, I still can't think of how the fuck they did it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so wild. The, I mean, it had to be one of those experiences. And, you know, reading some of the, the critical responses from back then, it's mm-hmm. kind of apparent that, like, it, it was just so kind of groundbreaking and convincing oh, and also disgusting that yes. people were were revolted no, yeah. by the film like yeah. g- genuinely offended by how gross it was yeah. as if it were some kind of you know smut film or something yeah um which is amazing because i i guess it was just in that way particularly its visual effects and its cynicism kind yeah. of ahead of its time i mean in the early 80s I guess there weren't a lot of other movies say, like bef- it. Before Carpenter finds the the his nemesis Ronald Reagan in the late eighties <laughs> with Reagan with Reaganomics and just being just hating being full cynic when it gets to the late eighties. Yeah. At this time, like he is a man who has done enough and has made enough money that Universal's like, You can do this if you want. Yeah. And he's like, Yeah, I'll do it. He's like, I'm gonna do it. He I mean Again, you have all those people who are part of it. You have Ennio Morricone. Yeah. You is it Ennio? Ennio. Okay, yeah. good. Who is you know the classic iconic late composer who did the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. Bunch of Sergio Leone shit, and he does a phenom. Basically, does his version of a John Carpenter score, which <laughs> I love. And you have a film where Carpenter Carpenter loved the original Thing from Another World so much. That he was like, I can't remake this uh-huh. if I try to do it like this. I have to figure out a way to do this without basically doing the original film. And he goes, oh, wait, the original film doesn't do the book at all. I'll just do the book. Yeah. Because in the original thing from another world, it's like an alien that looks like Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> it's like this giant guy with like a bald head and it's just a monster like six six plus foot. Right, yeah. That gets like put on fire and is <laughs> running around beating people to death. Yeah. But the original idea is a shape-shifting alien. Yeah. You can't do that in the 50s. No. You can definitely do that in the 80s if you wanted to. Yeah. And they fucking did. Like Carpenter is astonishing because Carpenter is one of those guys where he has a $20 million budget for this film. Puts more, put about, puts about half, if not more than half, into the effects, and then the rest of it goes into like sound design. He does basically everything else, <laughs> like he does everything yeah. else with pennies, and it comes out looking like this. And it's 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 one of those things where it's like, yeah, I know that it's 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 prosthetics, it's puppetry, it's all these different things, but I. You forget about that when the dog's face just pulls back and you see a skull. Yeah. Like, you you forget about that when you see a man's head come off of his body and becomes <laughs> a spider. Right. Like, you just forget about that shit. Well, and the, the atmosphere aids in that, too. You know, the, the oh. actors are all just... I mean, the characters are horrified at what they're witnessing. It's a mm-hmm. tiny space. You're not the, seeing the... Yeah. You're not always seeing the creatures in full lighting, you know? It's it's just that sickening, claustrophobic atmosphere. And that they just, hate each other. They've been there for so yeah. long, they're sick of each other. Yeah. So when it just and, starts to get real bad... Yeah, it's it gets, kind of amazing. It's not like a, we gotta band together and defeat this thing. No, we're, it's... We're gonna be gung-ho about it. Like, they, yeah, they all can't yeah. wait to backstab and kill each other and even mccready kurt russell's character the main character is like a really 
pessimistic, cynical, yeah, honestly kind of jumps to conclusions sort of guy. He's a helicopter pilot who is in his initial scene, he's playing chess with a computer <laughs> and he gets so mad that the that the computer wins, he just pours his whiskey into the computer and says cheating bitch yeah. and walks away. Yeah. He's so sick and of just being on that base that he's just Right. self-destructive and it's just funny thinking that like that was one of the things that put people off from this movie was how cynical all the characters were and how just yeah. kind of vile they were and mean and everything and it's like i don't because know at this it would point, fit right in today oh absolutely well at this point but at that this time is, it just didn't work this is like people. his first this is like his second film where he's been this cynical because it was escape from new york it's like cynical Snake. but it's also silly cynical no it's silly cynical yeah. but at least in in escape from new york like all of Snake's lines are just like, I don't give a fuck about country. I don't give a fuck about you. Yeah, right. I just, I want to get out of jail. This is what you're offering. I'm getting out. And then the yeah. end of the film is so cynical. It catches <laughs> you off guard, and I love it. And then this film is just, again, people people think about Escape from New York because it's Kurt Russell with an eye patch and a gun, but in reality, that film is just a dude who's in New York, which is now a prison, just fucking hating his life. Yeah. And then in The Thing, it's just about... A bunch of men who were stuck on a base in a lat and is Antarctica, right? Yeah, it's Antarctica. Yeah, it's Antarctica. Fucking hating everything about the <laughs> snowy piece of shit, and then a dog just shows up on their base, being shot at by a bunch of Swedes. Right. And they go, "Wait, why are they shooting this dog? Never think about it any further." And then they find out, "Oh, it's because the dog's an alien." Yeah. And it's the thing. Like, it's really hard to really talk anything more about that already hasn't been spoken. In terms of the trilogy, the apocalyptic theme is the fact that, like, this, they find out early on in the film, Wilford Brindley does an analysis on his yeah. computer. And he finds out that, like, if the thing gets away in Antarctica, it'll take three and a half years for it to completely assimilate the entire world. So at a certain point, they realize it doesn't matter if any of us survive. Because if that thing gets away, we are genuinely screwed. fucked. Yeah. It is a cataclysmic <laughs> event. Well, that that computer scene is probably the one, like, truly just silly moment in the film. Yes. Just because it's Wilford Brimley punching into a computer, and the computer is just spitting back this super specific. It's, mm -hmm. it's a super computer of the 80s, and it's just like, yeah. what is it's, this? It's like an MS-DOS screen. Yeah, this, it's is, just like... this is goofy. But, like... It, no, yeah. that's that's really the only thing in the rest of the movie you can you know it yeah. plays totally straight but it's like situations too where like this film does things that you don't you wouldn't expect to go this far like one of my favorite things about the film is how they try to discover who's a thing at one point where it's they do the blood test yeah. where it's just like they put the thing hates flames it hates fire right so what if we take a blood sample from everybody and we put flames next to it yeah and then like the one person who has it like the, the blood just jumps out and makes a little noise <laughs> yeah and it's horrifying cause it's like what yeah, the oh, fuck yeah. well yeah that's i mean the unpredictability of the whole thing like that the creature just takes so many different forms oh, and yeah. and you never know what it's going to look like or how it's going to respond Gosh, or it's when it's in do. the dog form and it gets its tendrils and it tries to go through the ceiling <laughs> like yeah. it's kind of <sighs> a perfect you know people harp on movies a lot of times for like not establishing the ground rules of the story yeah. or of the creature or whatever. And this is like the perfect excuse to give yourself basically no rules and constantly yeah. be surprising people and scaring people. And like, yeah, this thing can turn into basically anything at any time. 
Like, it's just, like, everything that it needs to do in terms of, like, you find the old base that the... It's, there's They're Norwegian or Swedish, but the, you find the Swedish. base that the... Uh, the guys in the helicopter shooting at the dog were from. You find the piece of ice that it's from. Yeah. You find it's flying saucer under the <laughs> under the ice. And you get to a point where like, okay, it's an extraterrestrial. It can look like us. I guess we just have to find it and kill it. Yeah. And then things just get worse. Right. And it even gets to the point where like there's a great moment that isn't talked about a lot. It, it probably is at this point because the movie's nearly 40 years old and it's a classic now, but... There's a scene where McCready, played by Kurt Russell, shoots a guy because he's coming at him with a knife, and you assume he's coming at him because he's a thing. But no, he was just self. He was just he was just coming at McCready to stop him because he thinks he's crazy, and McCready just yeah. killed one of their guys. Yep. And you can see in McCready that like there's a part of him that has no remorse, but the other part was just like, fuck. So I I just did that. I just got that, and everyone else is giving him shit about it. And it's like, well, you, yeah. why you, why would you do any different? Yeah. Like also, you, you guys all want to kill each other, yeah. and that guy was coming after him. I but. also love just how it is the most realistic reactions I've ever seen in a horror film. I st- I still think to this day of like when the spider crab tries to leave the room, and that one guy goes, There's... "What the fuck?" Yeah, and then like Kurt Russell turns around, and it's just like no one screams. They just they just like they're silent. Yeah, they're, they're silent, and then they just torch it. And it's fucking great. Yeah. It just feels so realistic in a film that is not realistic at yeah, all. Yeah, there's I no like, oh my yeah. god. And then you have the finale where Kurt Russell's last line is not fucking. It's not a yippee kaye. It's not hasta la vista. Yeah. It's just him literally going, yeah, and fuck you too, and then <laughs> blows up the thing. Yeah. And then it ends on the, well, did they kill it? Did they not? Who knows? Yeah. I like Doesn't, to think, I mean, I think Carpenter at this point kind of established that they did, but at the time, it's yeah. really cool. Like, the, the, the theories that people had in terms of... Yeah, people were like, oh, oh is, was yeah. McCready the yeah. thing? Was, uh, uh, yeah. I think what's G- his name? I think Keith, Keith Davis' name character. is Giles? Childs. Childs. Childs, yeah. yeah like, is Childs oh, the thing? Yeah, or or Childs did they didn't have it? any breath. Maybe that means he's he's yeah. pretending, yeah. or someone. There was a theory where people said like, you know, McCready actually replaced the alcohol bottle with gasoline. Yeah. So, so he knows he if Childs him. takes a yeah. swig, he's pretending. Yeah. It's like, that's so wild. But I love yeah. just the idea of that. But yeah, and just at face value, it just works too. It's just you know, yeah. maybe they killed it, maybe they didn't, but they gotta burn the place down and die with it. Yeah, I gotta be honest. If you're gonna make a film that has an apocalyptic theme an apocalyptic kind of setting this is you don't have to do any more than this right you've pretty much done it the first time but again at the time carpenter it was considered a flop almost to the point where carpenter basically had to do studio work to an extent to kind of build up some success again because it was at that time i think it's his biggest flop yeah where it was on a 20 million dollar budget and i think the film made total 19 million (laughs) which is like yikes Especially yeah. with the film that it is now. And so he did a bunch of films in between that and the next one, which was he did Christine, he did Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, and then we get to our second film in the trilogy, which is by far, out of the three of them, uh-huh. the most forgettable. Probably, no, nah, it's not the weirdest, because In the Mouth of Madness exists, but it is very odd in a good way. And all the ideas it has is 
very fascinating, and I feel like there is a great film in this movie. However, yeah, at its core, Prince of Darkness is about a priest hiring theoretical physicists. Yeah, basically and, like a college team yeah, of scientists. A college team led by Victor Wong <laughs> to basically figure out what a, a giant tube of green gel is under a church. Yeah. And they find out after doing a bunch of equations, after doing a bunch of checks of vibrations and stuff, that it is the liquid embodiment of Satan. <laughs> so we have a film where we have another set, we have basically the same kind of thing set up where the apocalyptic element is, if Satan gets out of this church, we're dead. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. Instead of it being in Antarctica, it's in an abandoned church in L.A., <laughs> Just in the middle of Just town. Just in the middle of L.A. And also in kind of a, a cla- kind of a home invasion type, almost like a soul on Precinct 13 type, they are trapped in that church because a bunch of schizophrenic homeless people led by your favorite character, Alice Cooper, as Street Schizo. Yes, that's literally his credit, Street yes. Schizo. Alice Cooper and Donald Pleasance are the biggest actors in this film, or biggest stars in this film. Yeah. And apparently... I, I I wish I had listened to it before, but Alice Cooper made a Prince of Darkness song for this film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. apparently the reason why he's attached is one of the produce, executive producers on this film is Shep Gordon, who is Alice Cooper's manager. Oh, okay. And was like, hey, you know, you would be great for this. Maybe you should do a song for this movie. And like, oh, maybe you'd even be in it. Yeah. And apparently uh, there's a character that gets stabbed by Alice Cooper's character. Apparently the thing he gets stabbed by is like, Cooper's iconic thing that like a- item that he has on stage with him at all oh, times. Really? Like, yeah, he like killed him with like his prop that uh. he always has on stage. And I think even I think in that scene too, that guy that gets killed is listening to the Cooper song in like headphones. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is funny as fuck. And what the film becomes is just like the first half of the film is a bunch of college, a bunch of grad students trying to figure out what the fuck this 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 ooze is and by the time they figure out what the ooze is it's too late the ooze has taken over a couple people yeah and and then once they realize that like satan has now been technically reborn they had to figure out how to kill him and they do actually i think the 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 way that they just the way they show the the other world i think it's it's supposed to be antimatter apparently the big thing with carpenter is he wanted to make a film pertaining to matter and antimatter and that's why in the film they establish that maybe satan is actually a part of an even bigger evil called the anti-god yeah which i think is like the lord of the antimatter or something basically, like that yeah if there's a god there's an anti-god yeah basically and... bigger satan right and which honestly makes it even funnier now because <laughs> when you see the anti-god for a second it is uh he's got not hooves, but he has red hands. He's got red hands claws. with big black talons on him. It's like quintessential classic Satan. Yeah, Christian imagery, imagery of Satan, and it's funny <laughs> as fuck. Yeah, and yeah, it, the movie is just really it. It it kind I think it goes for something interesting, kind of like how Event Horizon goes for something interesting in that it's kind of combining, uh, you know science that we don't know much about with yeah. horrifying supernatural possibilities yeah, and that I, they could be one in the same. I do think but it ends up kind of just being silly. 
Yeah, the, the best part about this film is the idea of mixing science with religion in a way that doesn't take away from one another. Yeah. Like, the, it's like, it is a priest who just, like, has no idea how to approach a situation, so he just goes for scientists to help him out. Right. And then ultimately they get to a point where they don't even understand how to go from here. If, like, if what they're being told is correct, they are going against a deity. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's like, how does science go up against this deity? <laughs> It is this great thing where it doesn't feel like they're shitting on religion. Carpenter's not shitting on religion, and he's not yeah. shitting on science. He loves science. He's fascinated by the idea of its relationship with religion. So you get a cool idea. And I do also love the idea that it's like they are in a populated plate. They're in a populated city. So like, if yeah. they do fail, they're fucked. Yeah. So like, when it comes to a point where a character makes a sacrifice, a very rash decision to try to stop what's happening, it makes sense because once they walk out that door, right. we're immediately fucked. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of a cool... It's like almost one of those like over-too-quickly situations, but it's yes. also kind of like, well, that was the smartest thing anybody could have done yeah. in that situation. That was actually kind of cool. There's even a cool visual, too, that like when that person jumps and sacrifices herself... You even see what she looks like on the other side. Yeah, and getting pulled the, away, like, which mirror is really world. cool. Yeah, I just yeah, it, and the, the, yeah, it's just a lot of cool concepts that are kind of yeah. strung together with a silly and dumb mm-hmm. plot. Yeah, it's just a little. It's hilariously enough. It's probably a film that could have just been a tight ninety, if not less. Yeah, and because it's, it's what, like almost a, two hours. I think it's an hour forty. Hour forty. Forty-five. 45 yeah. Maybe. Which even then, it's like. Yeah. Knowing Carpenter, it's kind of wild that it isn't yeah. just a tight 90 because it's like you have – because a lot of the moments, it's kind of wild because a lot of what just happens is a lot of people just start sitting around talking about how they have no idea what the fuck's going on. Yeah. And yeah. – or you, you cut to, I think, Dennis Dunn who plays Walter. Right. Who's also in Big Trouble in Little China, kills it in that film. But in this film, he plays basically the, the comedic relief – and a lot of his jokes are just wildly weird. Yeah, weird and... I, the, the one that sticks out to me the most is, like, he has a colleague who's just chilling out at a window, is doing her own thing, and he goes, hey, you know, you could pass as Asian, right? <laughs> and, like, that's all he says. <laughs> she gets disgusted, and he goes, what yeah. did I say? And it's like, you just said what you just said. <laughs> Why are you surprised, if anything? Yeah. And it's just... Yeah, the biggest issue with this is that the ideas are fascinating. The imagery is really fucking cool in terms of the the gel, the the mirror world that's supposed to be like the antimatter world and the look and feel of certain things and like Satan possessing one of their friends is looks disgusting. Yeah. And horrendous and gross. But at the very end of the day, one of the biggest issues of this film is that you just don't care. About any of the characters. None of the characters are really very interesting or even believable. Most of them are kind of caricatures. Yes. Uh, And the the dialogue just kind of meanders and doesn't Mm -hmm. really add anything to any of the characters. I feel like Walter might be the best developed character, and he's just the comedic relief. Yeah. It's because you basically have – there's different tiers. The, the, The top tier is basically pleasance and wong being like the professors who are explaining everything that's yeah happening. they're the ex- exposition yeah, they're, dumps. they're being the loomises in this scenario yeah. both of them are and then the next one you have the romantic the the love interests which are fine and their yeah. chemistry is fine 
but there's not a lot there. And right. then and then you have Walter just being hit and miss comedic <laughs> relief. And then you like have everybody else. Yeah, there's so many other characters and none of them yeah. really matter. And now it's going to be like every time I watch it, I'll go, I can't believe I just didn't assume that like most of these people are just fodder. So yeah. they could just get hit by Satan's goo and then just become right. evil, evil possessed people. Yeah, Satan basically just what happens. keeps spitting on people. Yeah, because that's the thing too is like keeps shooting for, his juice at yeah, people for the good first hour for the for the first hour of this film. Satan is a liquid gel. He's yeah. a goop. He's a green goop. He's that, flubber. Yeah, he's flubber. He's basically John Carpenter's flubber. He's flubber and, if you microwaved him. Yeah, and basically he's been trying to get out the whole time and. He uses the schizophrenic homeless of L.A. to basically can mind control them to a degree to basically crowd the team in the church so they can't leave. Yeah. And once someone gets close enough out of curiosity, the first time anyone does, <laughs> Satan just shoots goop into her mouth. Yep. And that's basically the rest of the film. And they just, just start characters shooting goop. spitting into each other's mouths. Someone apparently made that as like, what if this is Carpenter's... Uh, a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic, <laughs> just like constantly spreading it without anyone knowing. And then at the very end, when they find out, it's way too late. Yeah, and it's like, geez, if that really is what he's going for, <laughs> props to him. Like, Ugh. or like, I think that same person was like, Walter is a closet homosexual because in one of his scenes, he literally is stuck in the closet and he has to get yeah. out of the closet <laughs> to get away from women to right. get to stay alive. And it's like, these are fascinating takes. but These I are don't more entertaining than the movie. Yeah, that's the worst part is that the film is just forgettable. It's yeah. good. It's fine. But it's like, I don't, yeah. I, think cer- I think certain images will stay in my head. I don't think characters really are. Yeah, it's not like, a movie I think I would ever watch again, honestly. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say like this is, to me, lower tier Carpenter. Yeah. Not to the point that it's bad, because Carpenter does have bad films in his filmography. I would just call it mediocre. Yeah, I think it's... It's I think just kind of eh. Yeah, it's lackluster. Whatever. Even though I do love how the film ends, where it's like... in the in, During the film, they yeah. realize that the church they're at is for the Brotherhood of Sleep. And when everyone sleeps, they all have the same dream. And the dream is like almost like Blair Witch-esque found footage... Yeah, it looks voice, like a TV screen or a yeah. recording. Yeah, and, the, and a voice, which is apparently Carpenter saying, like, in 1999, the basically the Antichrist will come right. back, come to life. And for the first good chunk of the film, it's a mysterious silhouetted figure. But at the very end, when our our female love interest, I can't even remember her name. She's so forgettable. Yeah. When, she, uh, when she sacrifices herself, the next time you see the premonition, it's her becoming the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And that's gives an. I mean, it was. It is kind of a nice, chilling moment, especially when they say that it's supposed to take place in 1999. Right. Yeah. So it's like a 12-year kind of <laughs> yeah. gap, and then it ends on a moment where her uh, her boyfriend tries to touch the mirror, thinking that she might be able to get back to him. And that's like a that's a great ending to a forgettable film. Yeah. Yeah. And that's basically it. Like Prince of Darkness does a has a lot of great ideas, especially for an apocalyptic idea in itself. But overall. Of the Apocalypse trilogy is the most forgettable. And yeah. definitely probably the least fun. Especially when we go into our final <laughs> film. Yeah. Because our final film, there's about an eight, there's about a seven, no, it's an, it's an eight-year gap. Yeah. Where, like, in between Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, 
Carpenter does a few other films, but the one that is the most important, hilariously enough, is uh, <laughs> Memoirs of an Invisible Man, starring Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah in the oh, 90s. Yeah. Mainly because in that film, while Carpenter did not like Daryl Hannah, did not <laughs> like Chevy Chase, shocker, and was in a weird place tonally in terms of what that film wanted to be, he did start having a good relationship with Sam Neill. Yep. Who is, everyone knows is Alan Grant from Jurassic Park. Yep. He's a phenomenal actor. And at that time, post actually, it is post-Jurassic Park when this film comes out. I think a few months. Yeah, it Almost would be. a year, I think, yeah. by the time this comes out. He decides to pick up a film called In the Mouth of Madness, which is not written by Carpenter. It's written by Michael DeLuca. It's an original idea. Basically, the premise is, what if a Lovecraft-esque author, which is not Stephen King, basically... <laughs> but went, it's pretty much yeah, Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, disappeared, and you find him, and you realize that, oh no, he's become so powerful in terms of his monsters, his... His his fiction is now becoming reality, and people are becoming zealots for this new reality. Yeah, the apocalypse in this film is a lot more abstract. Yes, a lot more insane, yeah. and it's also the only film in these three where spoiler alert the apocalypse happens. <laughs> yeah, the cat and the gets other out two of the films, bag. yeah, and the thing they stop the apocalypse from happening with the alien invasion in Prince of Darkness. They are told that it might happen in 1999, but at the time, they stopped the apocalypse in the film. And in this film, there's no stopping it. Yeah. It is already underway. Like, it basically, by the time, thinking back at it, by the beginning of the film, it's pretty clear that it's going to happen. It's just our main character, played by Samuel, has no idea yet. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating story. Just, I mean, just because yeah. it's... it's playing on the ideas of of horror fiction and horror tropes it's very tongue-in-cheek yeah very tongue-in-cheek very uh (laughs) horror movie about horror um (laughs) lots of kind of jabs and nods at uh stephen king the the author of the books uh that are kind of the central device of the film is named sutter kane yes um, Which thankfully they, I thought they even went as far as to put Kane as K A N E, but thankfully they went C A N E. They had some sort of restraint, right? But they still they yeah. they put his name in the Stephen King font on the book yeah. covers, all, and all the titles of the novels are very Lovecraft esque, especially in the Mouth of Madness. Which yeah, is in the Mouth of Madness is the, the, Mountain of Madness. the central book of the story and yes. where the movie comes from. Okay, what basically happens is Sam Neill is a cynical. <laughs> He's, he's an insurance investigator. Yeah, he's an insurance investigator who is Charlton Heston is looking for his number one public number one artist. It's the author Sutter Kane. Yeah. And when they find Sutter Kane, they realize, oh my God, he his monsters have come to life. And yeah. what's kind of fascinating about the film too is the film gives you, I think, both explanations as to Sutter Kane at one point says that his monsters has always been real. His ideas have just been coming from them from far away. Yeah. And then I think later on, he just tells Sam Neill that like he has become so powerful that this has just happened. Like his ideas have become reality. Like even they can't commit to where he's getting these ideas. (laughs) It's like, it's so insane. 
Yeah. The, it doesn't even really matter. It's kind of, yeah, I guess the, the implication is kind of that he's been, like, puppeted by forces from the beyond. Yeah, like, yeah, like Elder Gods. Yeah, Like, basically Elder Lovecraftian Elder yeah, Gods. Yeah, this very vague, nebulous, hard-to-wrap-your-mind-around kind of phantasmal yeah. force. Who, who have been behind a wooden door for the last God knows how long, yeah, apparently. Yeah, Sutter Kane's been writing all of his premonitions yes. down in books as, and publishing mm-hmm. them. Because... Everyone's worried that In the Mouth of Madness, if it gets published, is going to bring the world to a certain end. And it's got to a point where Sam Neill goes, well, I have to stop it, right? And then the film doesn't really tell you how these even... It's like, it's a weird thing that the film has. It's like, the film's plot is not at all the standard idea of, like, stopping the apocalypse. It really is. A lot of it is just psychological like yeah it's how am i i don't i was like i just need to get out of here and then he can't get out of here so he's like i guess i have to stop it yeah and then doesn't really know what to do there either we're we're kind of dancing around it should we leave it unspoiled the the twists uh i mean we i mean at this point we kind (laughs) of i kind of already said that like this is the the first time the like out of the three of these the apocalypse actually happens well right but just the kind of the the meta-ness of the whole thing i guess i mean to a degree i think the way that we could describe it is it is it is a meta-ness that you wouldn't expect with something like this i mean it's it's, it's kind of twilight zoney yeah in the sense where it's like the characters are already in the trap long before you even know there is a trap whether whether Um, it's a good i mean it's less it's less scream more new nightmare where it's more the idea of like like a new nightmare, Wes Craven, who is a character in his own film, <laughs> basically says like, "Oh no, Freddy's real. Like he's always been real. It's yeah. just like an idea that's now become a reality, and I can't stop it from happening." Yeah. And then in the mouth, in the mouth of madness, it's the very similar thing where it's like, you get some insane visuals. Like there's, there's one visual where it looks like a like a hole in a book. Yeah. Ah, oh, so cool. It's just so fun and. It's fun to watch this and also think of, like, I don't think they hate each other, at least not anymore, and I don't even think they hate each other at that point. But, like, Carpenter was initially attached in the late 80s, and then he kind of dropped out and then picked it up back up in the mid-90s. But, like, Carpenter has kind of a strained relationship with King at the time. Yeah. Because he did something that King never liked, and at the time didn't like, where, like, in his version of Christine in 83, he completely changed the reason as to why the car was evil and king was not a fan of that at all (laughs) yeah and and he never he never not let that know to carpenter (laughs) to a degree and it's not hard to watch this and see them like basically shit on not stephen king and even make fun of stephen king at times (laughs) and be like well shit this is weird (laughs) this is happening yeah but no yeah i mean for what andy's describing yeah it's I don't know because it's like it is really fun. We would just recommend you giving it. Yeah, a watch it's fun just to kind of because, experience on your own because it's just yeah. kind of the the layers the, keep <laughs> getting pulled. You you kind of know where it's going. It's not like yeah. the, the. I mean, you can probably even tell just by the way we're describing it. But yeah. like even watching the movie, you can kind of tell where it's going. But it's just fun how far off the rails it goes yes. and yeah. how wild it gets. And <laughs> and you know, I I think to, to, a better. I I think this movie could be like a masterpiece i don't think it is i think it's a solid movie it's a good time it's yeah. fun but like i think you know there's it's, a it's lot ripe here. for a remake yeah. 
Oh, it's it's ripe for just yeah, or just a readaptation keeping. or something. Absolutely, I especially. I mean, it would be you know, hard though too you know because without be... Neil. Oh, go ahead. No, without Sam Neil, like Sam Neil fucking kills it. <laughs> he kills movie. it. Doesn't always He's kill ins- the accent, but he kills oh, the. <laughs> that was the funniest thing about this film is like he is He's just done all Jurassic over the Park. place. He knows how to do an American accent, and he is genuinely all over he the is, place. He's he's British. He's Kiwi. Yeah. He's American. He's if, transatlantic, like mid-century actor. But if you've ever wanted to see that man scream at the color blue, my <laughs> God, this is the movie for you. Yeah. The, to quote his character at one point to a degree is like, the ending of this movie is fucking Looney Tunes. Yeah. It's just insane. It's insane. And it's perfect. It feels perfect to what the film is trying to say in terms of what the apocalypse would be in this universe. Yeah. And it's also funny to think that the best part about this trilogy as a whole is that the apocalypse gets not only closer to home, but also becomes much more abstract to it. Yeah. And kind of like, and, how do you even contend with it? Yeah. How, how do you even, how is this, how are you supposed yeah. to stop whatever this is supposed to be? Right. Right. And the way the film is also kind of uh, structured is very much like a Lovecraft novel where it's like, where he's basically telling it all in flashback. Yeah. And by the end of it, it is, I mean, again, we won't spoil what the ending is, but if you've read a Lovecraft novel before, yeah, you can kind of tell. It's very Lovecraft, it's, very Twilight Zone, yeah. where it's kind of just, mm-hmm. oh, Get it's some, been this way the whole time. Yeah. Get some good uh, king, small town vibes a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But it's, you know, you know who would be a, a uh, great person to remake this movie today? Uh-huh. He's at the top of his game. Mike Flanagan. I thought you were going to say that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, with Midnight Mass no. just out, he's got yeah. an Edgar Allan Poe series on the way. Yeah, Fall in the House of Usher, Fall which I House can of Usher. He's done Stephen for. King before Yeah, uh, with Dr. Sleep. In, in my opinion, he has done probably the best adaptation of like King's writing. Like mm. Dr. Sleep just feels like I'm, re- I'm watching how King writes. Yeah, right. right. Or like with Darabont's stuff. How Darabont did his trilogy, which we're definitely going to talk about Darabont's trilogy at some point, because I love all three of those films. Oh, all two of them. I've actually never seen Green Mile all the way through. That's not the point. <laughs> but with Darabont, how Darabont directs is Darabont almost seems like I have to translate King's work into a usual film. Yeah. Well, as Flanagan with Doctor Sleep is like, yeah, he's kind of like, tr- I'm going to let the Kingisms come yeah. through and be. This is going to be weird. I'm going to do a two and a half hour film that is going to be a sequel to one of King's best novels, as well as one of the most iconic Kubrick films of all time. Yeah. And it's going to be two and a half hours, and it's just going to it's going to have moments where it feels like it has nothing to tie into, but it does, because that's classic King. Yeah. It's just shit like that. No, Flanagan, but then again, you, you're you just you're just trying to butter me up, because you know I'd say Flanagan's good for anything. Yeah. I literally think no, Flanagan I, would be good for the Exorcist trilogy. Oh, sure, absolutely. Like, if they did but that. It like, just feels so up his alley. Just, oh. just how much it's a tribute and also kind of a little fun, lighthearted jab at Stephen King stuff. Oh, yeah, and, and Lovecraft. Ape and Lovecraft. And you know, it's just so... Uh, and, and Midnight Mass was so much that, too. It was oh, yeah, so I mean, much yeah. basically Salem's Lot, but also what if we do more religious commentary yeah. and philosophical oh, commentary? Oh, yeah, Midnight, Midnight Mass was... <laughs> it's phenomenal. Planet, played against Stephen King miniseries without a Stephen King book. Right, yeah. And it's better than pretty much, I think, any Stephen King miniseries <laughs> I've seen. It's basically, yeah, Flanagan was like, what if I 
make up my own Stephen King story. <laughs> and he's like, shit, it worked. <laughs> this is fan fiction, people. Oh yeah, and I think he's even I think he's even producing Needful Things, which oh, is okay. Stephen King, uh, Stephen yeah. King novel, which I think is more of one of his crime novels. But I'm I'm hyped for Flanagan to do the Fall of the House. Fall of the House of Usher, the oh, yeah. Edgar Allan Poe, because apparently it's it's going to be a miniseries that also incorporates other Edgar Allan Poe stories into yeah. the Fall of the House which, of Usher which story, which makes sense because that's it's a short story. There's yeah. not a ton of detail to it, so mm-hmm. how you build that out is by adding other stuff into it. Yeah, which I, which he did with Bly Manor. I know with Bly Manor it's mainly inspired by Turn of the Screw, but there's another novel written by that same author that he basically kind of put into it and melded into it yeah. its own hybrid version of the turn of the screw kind of ad- adaptation. Yeah. So he's not against that. And I think he does a yeah. good job with that. Fuck. I mean, he made an entire miniseries based off of his own, just like I Id- like his own ideas about death and addiction <laughs> and religion. Yeah. And it's one of the best fucking things I've seen this year. Absolutely. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, I mean, again, in terms of in the mouth of man, it's, it's just such a unique it's unique for Carpenter. It's a unique film yeah. to come out in the '90s too. Yeah, especially for horror, because like at that point, what are we? A year before Scream, just like just yeah. completely deconstructs the slasher film. Right. So we just have a film where Sam Neill is just dissenting into madness as he tries to find not Stephen King yeah. in his own make believe world, <laughs> <laughs> which has like there's like one scene in the movie where it's like very David Lynchian and I loved it. Oh yeah, there, well there's a lot of moments that feel yeah. Lynch. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love how you just had to watch that while you're watching it. You're like, God, I hate Lost Highway. <laughs> <laughs> like you just had you had to say that, I, even though I knew it. It it reminded know. me of how much I hated Lost Highway. <laughs> Actually, I think every movie reminds me of how much I hated Lost <laughs> Highway. I hate Lost Highway. This podcast uh, reminded me of that. I guess the question is if if Flanagan. In our in our idea, does a miniseries or does the film of In the Mouth of Madness? Who is Sam Neill? Oh, is it Henry Thomas? <laughs> Probably. I mean, Flanagan's got his his yeah. his lazy Susan of actors that absolutely he's, they're all great. Who else would it be other than that? Yeah, I don't because know. I mean, I guess you could do <laughs> you could make Hamish do it. Hamish Linklater. Oh my God, Hamish would be fun too. Hamish Raul. is so expressive. Raul would Give be, Raul the leading role. You make Henry Thomas the Charlton Heston role. Yeah. You you make Raul you put Raul as the insurance. You make Kate Siegel the uh, assistant. Katie Siegel. <laughs> there you go. It's well, done. actually, I think it'd be even better if you put um, God, her name I can't. She's in you, but she was in oh, the first two. Um, I think v- Victoria, Victoria Pedretti or something. I think so. Yeah, she'd be great as the assistant. And oh, then yeah. like she's great in anything. Uh, ooh. <sighs> What if Hamish was Sutter Kane? Hamish should be Sutter Kane. Yeah, you're great. right about that. That would be great. He would be. It would be hilarious. Or who would be an actor that would be that would catch you off guard in a Flanagan thing? What if it was Bruce Greenwood? What if oh, he comes back wow. from Gerald's Game? Bruce Greenwood. I love Bruce Greenwood. Bruce Greenwood's great. He's he he is a he's like Mark Harmon but in films. Yeah. It's <laughs> a similar vibe. It's like, it's like, how is this guy not an absolute icon? Every time you know? I see him, I go, oh, that's Pike. That's that. Right. People he's know Batman him more for his like, roles than it by name. Yeah, he's, he's, Bruce Greenwood's great. He kills it in Gerald's game. Oh, <laughs> gosh. 
Cool. Yeah, see, now I'm just, you can now I'm just, just endlessly fantasize about a Mike Flanagan in the mouth of man. Yeah, and you could do a mini series too, where it's like he oh, goes sure. into different books or different yeah. parts of the town, right, right, at the time, and they're all kind of subtly different <laughs> flavors of yeah. Stephen King and Lovecraft. And... Oh gosh, that would be such a blast. But yeah, now I'm just sad that that doesn't exist. But yeah, it's still a solid movie in itself. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Yeah. It's Again, a wild ride. The worst part about this trilogy is the fact that it starts off with the best of the three, right? And so what you get after that is a forgettable, but intriguing second film. And then with this quote-unquote finale, it's fun and insane, but flawed. Yeah. And it's is if you love Sam Neill, gotta give it a watch. You'll have a good time yeah. if you like. And if you don't love Sam Neill, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say it better myself. Uh, <laughs> That's the that's John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. That's yeah. that is um, it's kind of cool to see him play it three yeah. very kind of high concept that's, world ending events. Yeah, it's like his best, one of his most forgettable, and one of his wildest films. Yeah, and it's a man that has has his own kind of wild filmography that has a lot of great films and a yeah. lot of and bad films in it as well. But <laughs> yeah. like, I he swings. I'm, he takes a lot. Yeah, of swings. he swings. He and and honestly, like. He's a man that like did so well in his first film that they turned his student film into a feature-length film, which mostly probably shouldn't have happened. And I think he even <laughs> kind of regrets that he let that happen. But like from that point forward, he only went up for a while. Yeah. The fact that like in the '80s he did like nearly a film a year. Yeah. He apparently also did, which is apparently phenomenal. Um, an Elvis miniseries with Kurt Russell in the late seventies. Oh, wow! Like right before he did Escape from New York, huh? In like late seventies, he also did like a like a soft Jalo film for TV oh, called okay. Somebody's Watching Me, and and that has like his his ex wife, but at the time I think was his girlfriend, about to become his wife, Adrian Barbeau, who has a phenomenal voice and is, kills it in the fog, but. Yeah. Yeah, Carpenter is just a... I love Carpenter. <laughs> I've been slowly going through his films this year, and I can't I can't wait to, like... Well, and he just seems like a great guy, too. He, it's so funny now, because, like, he's just, like... He is so unpretentious. <laughs> he's a cratchety old man who just wants to play Xbox and make rock music with his, like... With, like, yeah, <laughs> with, like make, his MIDI machine. He wants like, to make electronic rock. Yeah. Like, have you seen, like, or clips of him? Vaporware music. What? I want to see him live so bad. Yeah. If if he's in Chicago anytime in the near future, will you go see him? Oh, with I'll me? go see him. I yeah. want to go see him so bad because apparently never, I haven't delved. His his like I've seen clips of his live shows. He is like a seventy year old man just <laughs> rocking it out, and I love he's it. He's like uh, evil Gordon Lightfoot or something, <laughs> or evil Willie Nelson. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Or except ex- you know, except he's not actually evil. He's great. But yeah. But uh, happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah, happy Halloween. Well, I completely happy forgot apocalypse. to say that because it's like it's wild to think that while this month has felt super long, I can't believe we're actually at the end of it. Yeah, it's yeah. Spook- and Spooktober has and, come to an end. And what a way to end it with such a you know a, a true apocalyptic insanity that is this trilogy yeah. with a classic horror film, <clears throat> uh, Donald Pleasance pretending to be a priest for a hundred <laughs> minutes. And Sam Neill yelling at the color blue. What what truly, <laughs> what truly doesn't end a season better than that? <laughs> right. But thankfully, we're not done yet talking about some weird shit because next time we talk about, we're gonna have a fun time with a trilogy of a very 
critically acclaimed woman. Yeah. Who is thankfully it's it's our first female rise of. Yeah. And hopefully not our last. Of Unfortunately, not. there's not a lot that we can I can think of at the moment, but hopefully we'll come. Yeah, up in terms in of future. fitting into like a stru- trilogy structure. But no, yeah. But we are going to talk about the rise of an actor, rise of an actor, rise of a director who has made two phenomenal. Not really. Is it? Would you consider art house films? Yeah. Independent films. Yeah. Yeah. Art house films. Independent films, and and has a film at the very end of that trilogy. That is a gigantic, wild, cosmic blockbuster that Andy's already seen. Yep. That is the rise. <laughs> hint, hint. We are, yeah, we are doing the rise of Zhao. We are talking about director Chloe Zhao, and we're talking about her first three films, which are The Rider, Nomadland, and Eternals. <laughs> yeah, going from uh, kind almost like modern day uh, meditative westerns. Yes. Um, very kind of American landscape, studying people, you know, in in their kind of yeah, uh, in in poverty and in their in their environment. Very low key, we... kind of independent, mid budget films, and then <laughs> a two hundred plus the million weirdest... dollar Marvel blockbuster. Yeah, the wildest looking Marvel film we've gotten so far in yeah. terms of scope and yeah, ideas and, and yeah just all these wild things that they just like it's also just fascinating to me that like at at a certain point if covid hadn't happened this trilogy would have been uh rider eternal snowmad land yeah right to a degree because it was that like was the original kinda got, yeah because yeah, kind of eternals got pushed although back. i don't know that well i guess she probably still would have gotten tapped to do it no, I think she yeah. was she was tapped to do it before she did Nomadland. And okay, I think yeah, it was that just makes like, sense. They probably would have gotten released at the same time. Yeah, initially. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah, we're going through her indie darling that made her you know a big hit with critics, the Oscar darling that led to you know the Oscars she's won <laughs> in the, the film right. itself, and then we are talking about <laughs> we're actually going to talk about a Marvel film in a trailer, in a tease. Yeah, it'll be a trilogy. It'll be a fresh. Out of the out in the box office, yeah. it's yeah. one of the rare episodes where we'll be talking about a very newly released film. Yeah, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a very fun trilogy, just going from yeah. very grounded, you know, modern westerns like Andy said, <laughs> to gods. <laughs> yes, yes, Chloe, space, Chloe space gods, and yeah. do we? Yeah. It's funny to questioning think, their own loyalty to yeah. their own creator. It's so funny to think that it's. That Kevin Feige, you know, the the chairman, the head of creative yeah. Marvel choices is like, hey, Chloe Zhao did a great job with the writer. How about $200 million to do a God's film for Marvel? Yeah, right. And here hey, we yeah. are. Yeah. So, so yes, before, uh, that'll be on the, that'll be on the 13th yeah, of November. November. 13th, so so we're do your homework week. by then. Yeah. Go see Eternals. Cause we're. I don't want to hold back on spoilers next week. I had to hold back this episode. He had to. He had to. Because he knew I was going to hit him if he'd said anything. Yeah. So, Give him a good slap. <laughs> so I need. So everybody's got to go see Eternals. Uh, it's a good movie. It's worth seeing. Yeah. And, and then um, tune in so we can talk about it. Yeah. And it's going to be. And thankfully, we're going to end on a on at least, I hope, a high note emotionally. Because Nomadland kind of wrecked me. And I'm hoping the writer <laughs> is not as sad. Yeah, I haven't seen the writer either, but we've yeah. both seen Nomadland. Yes. So um, yeah. So I guess yeah. In terms of our experiences with Chloe Zhao at this point, we both saw Nomadland because of the Oscar season, 
and the writer has kind of been I think it's been both our radars for as long as that film has kind of had like a yeah a, kind I mean, of a, I, I a culty kind of classic vibe yeah I heard about it from a lot of my IFJA colleagues when it came mm-hmm. out and I just wasn't I I never got around to see yeah. seeing it but a lot of them touted it as I think it was 2017 one of the best movies of 2017 yeah I, it was one of those weird things um, where it's like and it just didn't, you know, it was, it was, did not nearly get the attention, obviously, that Nomadland did, but. Yeah, it got weirdly snubbed. Like, critics who saw it seemed to love it. Yeah. It was and then the writer just ones, never got nominated for yeah, anything. Yeah, it just got at, like, you know, stratospheric yeah. praise and then totally forgotten come then, like, award f- season. And then, like, a few months later, she was, in, she was attached to Eternals. I yeah. was like, what? Wow. It's like, why did this, it's like, why did this movie not get pushed more if it's apparently that good? Is that the reason why right. she's doing this? And so. then, and then we saw No Man Land, and we're like, ah, that's why people love her. Yeah, she's, she's killing it. So yeah, tune in on the thirteenth when we do the Rise of Zhao. But until then, I'm Logan Sowash, and I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.